Bienvenue dans l'Alcove, présenté par Théo Taxi. Aujourd'hui, notre invité, Paul Butnitz. Welcome to the Alcove, presented by Théo Taxi. Today, our guest is Paul Butnitz. Paul Butnitz is a serial entrepreneur. He is the founder of Butnitz Bicycles and co-founder of Ello, the social network for creators. But Paul is best known as the founder of Kid Robot, the world's premier creator of art toys. His latest projects include Woo, a communication tool, and New York, a game. Butnitz is also the author of several books, exhibits as photographer and filmmaker, and has founded over a dozen companies. He lectures on creativity worldwide and splits his time between Vermont and New York City. Paul, it's an honor to have you in the alcove today. Thank you for joining us. We'll start off the interview with a quick round of questions to get to know you a little bit better and to warm everybody up. Um, so first, would you say you are more serious or easygoing? Oh, <laughs> I wouldn't say I'm easygoing at all, uh, but I wouldn't say I'm very serious either. Um, that's a good question. Um, None of the above. I get when I'm when I'm working, I'm very very focused. I think, kind of insanely focused on whatever it is I'm doing. But part of the reason that um, that I have done so many things is there's just this part of me that when it comes down to it, I just say fuck it and I do it. So I think it's kind of a mix of intensity and then the willingness to just let go at the right time and jump in. Great. Who is someone that you would love to collaborate with? Um, David Bowie, but he just died, unfortunately. Um, who would I love to collaborate with? Um, in another life, I'd love to make music with James Murphy from LCD Sound System. Wow. If I could, that would be amazing. I'd love to make music. It's something I, I've always wanted to do and I have no talent for whatsoever. <laughs> so I haven't actually done that. but. Um, who has been your greatest inspiration? Um, the truth, the real truth is um, all the horrible adults and teachers that I knew when I was a kid more or less drove me into doing my own thing. I think like for me, especially when I was younger, a lot of the things I did were about just being pissed off and wanting to do my own thing and not wanting to just go along, you know, go along with the flow of what, I, what seemed very much like a difficult and hypocritical adult world. And as I grew up and I matured a little, I'm still the same way. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm more controlled about it and I know it. So it's made a big difference. But I think in a certain respect, I, a lot of my life has been formed by negative inspiration as opposed to to positive, mm -hmm. and yet somehow I think a saving grace for me has been that I, I have a very uh, hopeful, rather naive American point of view around things, sometimes really stupid American point of view, which, um, which has helped me get through a lot of that, what I would call really negative inspiration, which is the other half of the, at least where I, or the country I live in, so. What's your favorite book? Um, favorite book. Uh, Do you read? Yeah, yeah, I read. Uh, probably, uh, uh, probably, probably, uh, 
Opening the Hand of Thought by Uchiyama Roshi. It's a Zen, he was a Zen Buddhist Zen master from Japan. Wow. Really amazing book. Um, which is your favorite kid robot toy? Huh. I used to never answer that question because then oh. I would get in trouble, but I know. <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> but I sold the company, so I can say anything I want. <laughs> um, really, I love money. I like money. Money is probably my favorite. Until I left, it was always blank. They, we never put anything on it. So yeah. it was always a canvas for people to create things with. And, it, and for those who have seen that toy, there was a lot of attitude in it. You know, one leg's a little in front of the other, the shoulders are hunched, the neck's cut at an angle. And so there was so, and it's round and curvy, which made it really easy to customize. And there was so much put into that and it took quite a long time to design right. So that'd be my favorite one. Uh, how many butt knits bicycles do you have? I personally, I personally have two, but it's kind of a cheat because I can take anything I want from the company when I want to, and we have a demo fleet. So when people come down to visit, if any of you have come down to Burlington, so I got to drive up here today because I live in Burlington, Vermont. So um, if any of you come to visit, we have a little fleet of bikes and you can take them out for fun and anyone can, our friends just come by and take them. It's kind of funny, but yeah, so I have two at the house, but, um, but my favorite new one is we're just, we're just finishing an electric bike. But it's a single-speed electric. I think it's it's probably the lightest, uh, and it's a it's a one-speed. It's an amazing, it's an amazing vehicle. It's pretty pretty cool for long distances. One of the guests that we had earlier this week said that electric bikes were the most incredible thing that was going to happen are. to the world. Yeah, they're electric bikes. Really, if can change the world, and I almost sometimes think it'll be a generation shift before people really get it. But they. A good electric bicycle becomes a substitute both for a bicycle and a car mm -hmm. and gets you out of the door on the days when you think, oh, man, I don't want to go out today. You know, I'm going to drive because I'm feeling tired, I didn't sleep well, I drank too much last night or whatever it is. But the electric bike is so much fun and it just takes the edge off enough that gets you out the door and it becomes a very inexpensive and uh, really efficient way to get around. That's why we're building one. We just wanted to make one that was really simple, nothing complicated, almost impossible to break. You know, that whole thing. So, really expensive. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Small uh, company. <laughs> how often do you use your bike? Uh, every day. Yeah, I bicycle to work most days, except for the worst days of winter. Mm. Excluding your company, uh, what company or business do you admire the most? Oh, wow. These days. Um, well, so I've got a couple friends in Vermont um, that... Um, Pete and Ben, they, they basically make cardboard pinball machines. Anybody seen this? It's so amazing. They come in a flat box, and it's a pinball machine, and then you put it together, and then you decorate it, and then you paste all the things down that makes the pinball machine, like you can put bells in and electronics and stuff all over it, and it's totally recyclable. And it's a really awesome pinball machine. So like you get to put it together. It's like so awesome. It's really? like an amazing thing. So yeah, I totally think that. What's what, it called? Um, I don't, they're pin box. Pinbox 3000 or Pinbox 2000, I don't, they keep adding numbers to it. <laughs> it's called Pinbox, and anyone who can should probably pick one up. They're so amazing. So there's that. Um, other businesses that I admire, that's a really good question. Um, I'm actually having a hard time thinking of any others. I, I love 
you know, I love when people really take risks to do things that are really in their heart. Mm. For me, business has always been sort of a way, a, a way to get to make and the things that I design real, the things that I love to make and to get to work with friends. Um, and it's been a way to do that without asking permission from other people. You know, like I, I studied art and I discovered that if I went out into the world as an artist, I would have to be asking permission from all the art galleries and the people who run, people who run museums and all that kind of stuff. And, and I just didn't know if I wanted to get into that. In fact, I knew I didn't want to get into that. I met a bunch of those people and I thought, why am I going to spend my life asking their permission to do what I want to do? So to me, business has always been very democratic. It's been a way to design things and then get those things out there and, and to get to work with really brilliant people. Um, and I, unfortunately, I don't, I, I see people doing things like that, but a lot of the time, and really small businesses, I see a lot of passion and love. But as unfortunately, like the CEO and the big business has been glamorized in our culture. And those businesses are really mostly about money. And I find that really heartbreaking. Um, Money's okay too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm into money. But, you know, but with a balance, you know, we have, to, we have to make a decision. What are we willing to do and what are we not willing to do for money, right? The American corporation, at least, I don't know about the Canadian corporation, but the American corporation has basically one job. It's to make money for the investors. That's what it's there for. Yeah. If it doesn't do that, the people in that corporation can be sued. But there's always a line that we will and won't cross. Are we going to go sell guns for a living? Are we going to sell cigarettes? You know, what are the things that we're willing to do and we're not willing to do? My bar is, is fairly high on the things that I'm willing to do. I could have made a lot more money probably mm -hmm. if I just wanted to make money. Right. So to me, it's been a lot more about connection and expression and things like that. Mm. And making money. <laughs> Both. Um, what sound do you love? I love the sound of vintage synthesizers. Mm. So, when the, so when, the, when the iPhone first came out, remember the first iPhone first came out, it only had like eight ringtones on it and they were all really horrible. And then everyone had the same ringtone. So I decided I wanted to have my own ringtone, but you couldn't do that. And the only way you could do it was, this is a funny story. Well, I don't know if it's actually funny, but this is a story. So the only way you could do it was that you could pay 99 cents and download a song. Do you remember this? You could pay 99 cents, you could download a song, and that song could become your ringtone, right? So what I did was I created an album of monosynth sounds that I liked, and then I uploaded the album. So this is a good illustration of how my businesses start. I uploaded the album to iTunes so that I could then download the songs again and then pay 99 cents to myself and then make them ringtones. And then I discovered that if people started buying my album, and it was just these weird like sounds that I had made in a friend's studio, like you know, funny sounds. And so the next thing that happened is so I started uploading more albums in my free time. I'd just make them again. And then then I figured out how to hack the iTunes search engine. So basically we figured out how to make our results come to the top. And then, <laughs> because I was really busy doing some other stuff, I gave the company to a couple friends of mine, and I kept a piece of it too, who were musicians who were broke. And they started making all these sounds and then uploading and then figuring out how to hack the search engine better. And at one point, it was making a quarter million dollars a year for each of us. <laughs> and then it started to go down and down and down. And I recently sold it to my friends when it was making almost nothing because people figured out what we were doing. Then Apple figured out what we were doing. And then it sort of died. But it was fun for a while. And, but the sounds were really beautiful. 
Mm. So there you go. Long answer to a sound question. <laughs> uh, what was your favorite food when you were a child? Uh, 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 pickles. Love pickles. Yeah, pickles. Um, if you could learn to do anything, what would it be? Music. Right. If I could learn to do anything, I would make music. I have a very um, bad ear for music. I tried when I was a kid. So when I was a kid, I, I was, I wanted to be in a punk band, and I was 11 or 12. And my mother, meaning really well, got me guitar lessons, and my guitar teacher was Joe Cetriani. But he worked out of a, so you can imagine a very small guitar shop, and in the back door of the guitar shop, where you would normally walk out to like take out the garbage, he had built a plywood box, about eight feet by eight feet. He was very poor at the time, and no one, really knew who he was, and he taught guitar in this plywood box behind the guitar, and that's where I would go take guitar lessons. But unfortunately, Joe was like really amazing, and I was really horrible, and he had no, he was not like the best choice of a teacher for someone who's not, and so I didn't, I got completely discouraged and never really became a musician, because I just thought I, I had to be that good, which I wasn't. <laughs> um, and finally, how many times have you been to Montreal? Um, dozens because we live only less than two hours south of here. So we come up here all the time. And my favorite restaurant in Montreal is Tri Express, the little sushi place. <laughs> the place is amazing. Mm. And we don't have any, I don't think the state of Vermont doesn't have any sushi. Almost. Really? Almost. There's like a little bit in Burlington, but not really. So we come up here just to get sushi. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get started. Yeah. Um, so you have a pretty interesting background. So your father is a nuclear physicist. Yes. Your mother's a social worker. You went to Yale. Yeah. Um, you made a couple of movies, one of which won the 1997 Berlin International Film Festival. Yeah. Or, so from movies, you decided to go into business. Yeah, I was already how, in how business, was that? actually. Okay, so how did your, your journey into entrepreneurship happen? Well, it started when I was in junior high and I decided that um, I wanted, well, so I was typical angry eighth grader and wanted to blow things up. So my friends and I were into fireworks, uh, which were illegal in California where we grew up. So we used to go to Chinatown into the housing projects in Chinatown and we would buy fireworks from this guy totally illegally um, and then bring them back and sell them to our friends. That was my first business. <laughs> and, and then I, I, but I was also a computer geek, and so I put all, I computerized actually in the old teletype machines that went into the mainframe at the University of California. I, I uh, computerized the sales list, so basically our customer list. Um, I decided that would be a really smart thing to do, and so I put our customer list in, and less than 24 hours later, three uniformed police officers uh, um, and a guy from like, probably the FBI or something were at my house, and I got suspended for a week, I almost got expelled from school. And um, because it turned out that those computers were on loan from the Department of Energy in the United States, which is what controls the nuclear bombs. Oh, wow. So I didn't realize that. <laughs> so that was my first business. And my dad was really cool about it, which is, I was very lucky. Um, so yeah, so it, I, it's interesting. I, I discovered, I didn't really ever want actually to go into business. I just discovered I had a knack for it. I just happened to have this sort of talent for turning things into things, knowing 
sort of seeing between the gaps and seeing how something could be viable. And I also had just this practical side of myself that could work through things and actually complete them. So I went from that and I paid my way, most, most, most of, mostly I paid my expenses through Yale with a um, t-shirt company I had with a friend. We were putting like pretty punk rock designs all over t-shirts. And then from there, um, I, I was photographing, I was basically taking pictures. So anyway, business was always an excuse to make art and until Kid Robot happened, I went through a half dozen businesses mostly, which were things that would pay me money so I could do things like make films, which would then, I would spend all my money, lose all my money making films, and I would do another business, so I would lose all my money making films. And then eventually it all kind of came together with Kid Robot where I actually got to, you know, I realized I could actually start companies that were both, I mean, the, the earlier companies were creative too. I, we, we used to buy and sell, use Levi's and sell them to the Japanese. We had a clothing label. Um, so it was always a mixture. But I, I think Kid Robot was the first time when, it, for a long time, it was less of a compromise. But you made like a killing with the Levi's and Jordans. Yeah, we did really well. We used to buy, so we used to go to garage sales and buy pre-internet. We used to go to garage sales and buy in uh, flea markets and we'd buy used Levi's. And then we would box them and we would ship them to a hotel room. We'd ship like, we would rent a hotel room that's about as big as this room, and we would fill it with boxes full of used Levi's, about half full of boxes. And then I would hire a translator, and I would go around to all, my friend Sean did this with me, we'd go around to all the, um, all the used clothing stores in like Harajuku and Osaka, and we would say, hey, we have all this used clothing in a hotel room. Would you like to come see it? And then they would come over and see it, and then we'd do this cash business where they would just buy the stuff. And, some of the some of those jeans, like you know, we'd buy for buy the pound, and I I've sold pairs of jeans for five thousand dollars. I sold pairs of jeans for twenty five thousand dollars, and we would sell old like first series nineteen eighties Air Jordans and horsehide leather jackets and all the stuff the Japanese were really into, and that was the really expensive stuff. So it was that was pretty fun. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that was kind of crazy, but that was again like that was all motivated. That was fun, and then we'd recut them. We would have the stuff recut and could sell some of the stuff at Urban Outfitters and other places too. And then let the less expensive stuff would go off into other places. And then grunge came out, which was awesome. So we could sell all the ripped, ripped stuff for a lot of money. The more ripped, the better. That was awesome because that stuff that was all the leftovers that was sitting in the back of the place. <laughs> Just got lucky, but all that money would then go back into art projects, whether it was photography or filmmaking or other things I was doing. So interesting because most of the entrepreneurs that we speak to, they all started very young, getting something, buying it, and selling it for more expensive to their friends or to the people in their neighborhood. Right. And it kind of gave them that love for business and yeah. just go from there. Um, so the first reaction that you get in a lot of the projects that you took on was, this is not going to work. This is a terrible idea. Yes. Um, well, but you've it's kind of mixed. Okay. So generally I have an idea of something I want to do and I'm completely, totally enthusiastic about it. Right. Like I'm so excited. Right now I'm building a, a communication app, almost like a messaging app that's very different than anything else that's out there. Very, very different. And then like, so I'm super into it and super excited. And then at the same time, I'm aware that it is completely and totally insane idea to even think about doing that, especially mm -hmm. now. So yeah, so it's like kind of both things at the same time. If you take the concept of, you know, the bigger businesses that you've had, like Kid Robot, yeah. you were saying, you know, selling really expensive toys 
to adults. It just it doesn't with designed by my hoodlum friends. Yeah, like you go to VC, they're not gonna. <laughs> they didn't give me any money. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but you know, you've had a ton of success, and do you think that if you came up with these ideas that everyone was super into from the beginning, would you be hesitant to go through with them? Um. Well, but but that's the thing, you know. So so what's What's difficult is that it's both things at the same time, right? right? I am, like, to me, Kid Robot was just an obvious thing that was going to happen. Right. Like, it was just like, it was like, it was like a center of gravity. It had to happen. It was just these such beautiful toys, and I just had all these friends that were making all this beautiful art, like the art that's here. And connecting those two together and the whole art toy thing, like, to me, it just had to happen, but if you stepped back, and if I stepped back, it looked to totally insane. Like, who's gonna, like, there's no category for adults to be buying toys, limited edition toys created by street artists. Like, that just wasn't, mm-hmm. I mean, there was a little bit of that in Japan happening, a little bit. Little, little, little. But, so, I think it's, to me, it's like, you know, they, they used to say that, like, Steve Jobs had this, if anyone read his biography, this reality distortion field, right? That, like, wherever he went, people would believe in, like, whatever he, whatever he believed in until he left the room. And they'd be like, what was that? <laughs> you know? And I feel like it's some, like, you know, when you're really focused on something, it's sort of the same thing. It's like mm-hmm. the world, it's like the, wor- it's like the world bends around your excitement and mm-hmm. your sense that this can happen, that this can be real. And as long as that's held together, um, and I think that that's a very, very, very specific talent as long as you, you're doing that, the whole project moves ahead. And the second that, that, that you start to separate from it, it's, it seems like it, the world collapses around it. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of having that experience right now with, I designed a game and then I brought in a friend, an amazing friend of mine to illustrate and another friend of mine to actually program it. And I'm realizing that as if I, and I'm working on this other project and as I take my attention off the game, it starts to float and I put my attention back on it and my enthusiasm, because it is really an amazing thing. It's more than, it's like a world, really, that we're building. Um, and when I put my energy back in it, it, it comes back together. Mm-hmm. And it's not, and it's, it's almost metaphysical, you know, and I'm not exactly sure why that, why that happens, but it does. So why do you think when you stepped away from, like, Kid Robot, you know, you've said that you really like that first ideation phase and that yeah. creative phase and executing it. But to then maintain that business and run it and operate it is not your forte. It's not something that you're really interested in. Right. But you kind of left at the right time that it it floated but in a positive way and it's, it's continuing to grow. Um, like when's the right time? How do you know? Or is it just based on how you feel? Well, there were a lot of reasons why I left Kid Robot. I mean, one was that um, we had big investors because I had grown big, and it was my first time really working with investors like that. And it and it became uh, for some of them less about the beauty. Like to me, like making money was based always on the beauty of what we were making and the brand. And as long as we paid attention to those things, it was like the glass was always fill, full, and we could take a little bit as it rolled off the top. But if, we, if you focus instead on making money and then try to be creative into that, mm-hmm. it's just a disaster. And I felt like I was being asked to do that over and over. And it was just a lot, and the pressure to do that wasn't interesting to me. 
And part of it also was the same, what you said. It's like, I'm not an administrator. I'm like the guy that built, you know, I'm, I'm a creator. That's what I love to do. So when it gets to the point of just sort of maintenance, I'm probably not the best guy to have around, though I'm involved with LO, my bicycle company, even Kid Robot, which is now making a movie with MGM, it looks like, um, and all my new projects that like basically I remain involved, but you don't, I don't think a, a, and a successful company doesn't need the level of innovation I'm bringing all the time or else it just starts to, you know, I'll destroy it mm-hmm. in the process because I'm just, I'm so interested in what's next. So. Um, you've said that it, it doesn't seem, you know, it doesn't matter how successful you've been, you feel like every time you start a new project, you're starting from scratch. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, I wish that at my stage of my career, someone would just easily would just give me money and just say, here's some money, do whatever you want to do. Um, but every, every single time, you know, I'll have a new idea and I have to actually build it. I have to invest in it. Um, I have to take some risk. You know, one of the things I hear a lot from, so a lot of people come to me and they say, I want to start a business, right? And I hear this a lot nowadays, and I don't see very many or any in the people like this in this room, but um, from developers, people who program apps and stuff, right? They often come to me and go, I, want to, I don't understand, like I want to do my own, I want to make my own app, but I'm, I'm just working as a contractor. Or I hear that often from designers, people who are design and branding companies a lot. And some people here too, like that. And the problem is that people think, so what happens is like you're paid $100,000 a year or more to program computers, or you're paid eighty dollars or $100,000 a year, or you make good money designing stuff for big brands, advertising and whatever, right? So you start to have the illusion that your time is worth that much money, mm. right? And you think that if you stop doing that, you're actually kind of paying to not work. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? And it's a trap. It's a trap. This is the trap of capitalism. It's a secret. <laughs> this is the truth. It's a trap. Because you think that when you're not working, you're not earning that money, so you're essentially paying it, paying that money. But the, the reality is that my time and your time and everybody's time and fucking Bill Gates's time is just one human being's time. And you can choose what to do with your life. And for me, one of the things I choose to do is every three to five years go completely broke on another idea because I'm basically not working, not earning any money, living off savings, living off debt, and then starting another company that I make a bunch of money and then I spend that money and I do it all over again. And that's sort of my pattern. And the thing is that I'm not afraid to quit. I just, I was, so I was the CEO of Ello until about six, eight weeks ago and I walked away because I thought I was doing a crappy job. And I love the network and I love my friends who were building it. And I just felt like, they're in Colorado actually, and I'm in Vermont, and I was, the distance was too much, and the vision was shifting away a little bit from what I felt. I still love it, but it was a little bit what I felt I could contribute to well. So I left, and I was getting a decent salary, and I had to walk away and go, God, now I have no income again. So I'm starting another company again, and I'm doing all the work myself again. I had to build the prototype. I did the design myself. I did the prototyping myself. I did all that stuff, and I got funded. Someone gave me some money, which was really awesome. And I am far enough along in my career now that I can say, here's my terms of, my, of investing my company. I'll give you a good deal, but you get no control. It's a one-page contract. You get, you're not on, you get no board seat. 
you don't tell me what to do, you give me the money and I'll make you some money back. A one-page contract. One-page, one-page. It's a one-page, I'll even say, it's a one-page contract with a bunch of boilerplate junk that lawyers put in at the end. But the actual meat of it is one page. Nothing complicated. I, and, and so that's, I'll give up a lot to have that level of simplicity mm. as opposed to a complicated business. But anyway, the point is that like, if you want to make something, you need to create, you need to sacrifice something unless you're very lucky. And I haven't ever met anyone that lucky. So unless you write a song, you have one big hit, and then you're just done, you know, your life's set or whatever. But, and, and a lot of people are, don't realize that or are unwilling to make the sacrifice. They're too afraid. So. That's heavy stuff. Is it? Yeah. I really think it's very hopeful. It's great. Because <laughs> um, you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> you just have to quit. <laughs> um, let's go back to Kid Robot for a yeah. second. Did you ever think that it would get that big? Yes. I mean, the movie, that's, that's huge. Yeah, I thought it would be, I, if, I, I thought it would be bigger, actually, than it is. So, yes, I did, the whole mm. time. I just hold that vision. Like, I just hold the vision for, woo, this new thing I'm making that is just gonna completely transform how people communicate. And it's really beautiful, graphic, gorgeous, simple way. It's basically an app for sending love, and it's structured differently than anything anyone's used. And because the structure is different, it, it makes a certain kind of communication easy. So it mirrors the way I communicate with my seven-year-old daughter. Um, but we've tested it with adults too. <laughs> but it mirrors a, a very simple kind of communication. It's, it's very new. This so, is woo. Yeah, and so it's gonna change the whole world. It's gonna be gigantic. And that's one of the reasons I can get investment money because I believe it. At the same time, it's completely impossible. Mm-hmm. So you have to hold that. You have to hold that at the same, hold that in simultaneously, which is hard. So you left Ello about two months ago yeah. or so. Yeah. And you're starting Woo. Yeah. And you said that, you know, you wanted, you had made mistakes in your mind at Ello, and that this was going to be a chance for you to right those wrongs in in your mind. Yeah. What are those mistakes? What do you feel? Well, I'd never really built anything with technology like that before, you know? Like, Ello is a social network. We made it for creators, for people like people in this room. Um, it's built to be ad-free. Um, the, the inspiration behind it was basically I was just getting sick of all the other, right. feeling manipulated in all the other networks, and that subtle sense of manipulation was, it just made it slightly unpleasant, just like it's slightly unpleasant to watch a good show on network television. You know, but even more so on the internet with all the data mining and everything, you just feel manipulated in very subtle ways. And sometimes that's okay, and we're willing to do, go through that. But yeah. for certain kinds of communication, it wasn't. So that was Ello. But I hadn't really done that before, so I didn't really know a lot about how to build things very inexpensively, um, how to manage a technology project. So there's all that practical side of things. And there was also just the realization that I had to creative partners, and it really, in a lot of ways, for the first time in my life, the initial idea came out of me, but a lot of the creative vision were Todd and Lucian's. And they're just amazing, like I said, amazing and remarkable people. And yet, finding myself just as a CEO is not really my best role, you know? So a part of it, part of it was that. And, and then a lot of it, yeah, and a lot of it was just like, you know, I, I heard this thing, I saw that actually, I met, about five years ago, Woody Allen's producer, she produces all of Woody Allen's films, 
And she said one of the reasons that Woody Allen gets to make these sort of art, artistic films is he always, he had their very low budget, and he always comes in below budget, always. So he makes films for not very much money, and then sometimes they're big hits, and sometimes they don't make any very much money at all, but because he hasn't spent a lot of money, he's sort of free to do whatever he wanted. And I realized, you know, with Ello, we had an investment of like $9 million. It's a lot of money. For this new project, I actually constructed it around the idea of how inexpensively could I build it. So it's built on existing backends, a lot of open source stuff. I made a really good deal with a, with a production company that's actually doing all the building at a very, very, very low price. I'm bringing in almost all my friends as stockholders. So I'm giving stock actually to a lot of people who I know and love very small amounts of stock, just maybe for karmic reasons, but also because they can, a lot of these people are, are well known in different fields or successful in different fields, or some of them are just brilliant. So I'm creating a gigantic pool. I'm just putting all these pieces together to try to do it in a different way. And I, the amount of money that I raised is very, very small, especially for this kind of thing. But it gives, I'm essentially able to do anything I want. And that gives me the freedom to make something great. So that's also what I learned. It's like, if you have a lot of money, you're going to spend a lot of money. If you don't, I would rather have the freedom to make something great and sacrifice me making more money. And it's really nice when you have a giant staff and an assistant and all that stuff, but it's also not nice. It's nice to have the freedom just to just to go out and do it. And I, I like to have my hands in it. I want to do the work myself. It's much more fun for me. And so at Ello, you were CEO and that didn't feel right. What role would you like to play at Woo? Oh, I'm the CEO at Woo, but I'm also the designer. Um, but I, again, I think that like if you're, if I can keep it, I think that the, I think that in a lot of ways I'm the vision, and I'm the energy, and I'm the thing that's holding and putting it together, and I'm trying to see how. If I can, if I can create this company with almost no staff, but just with a lot of friends, you know, with bringing in friends, it's yeah. like I said, you know, it's like so I needed design help for it. So what did I do? So I needed, so, so I should say, say something about Wu. I left Ello about two months ago and decided I would take a year off. And I had a talk to give in That's New York. That's not working out for you. It's not worked out very well. <laughs> I had a talk to give in New York City that I just promised that I'd give. So after leaving, you know, basically, I went directly to New York, gave this talk. I was sitting in the Museum of Modern Art, um, just sitting around, I, I, I have stuff, they took some of my stuff there. So they get, when you have stuff in the museum, you get a lifetime membership. So I went, and you get a discount at the restaurant. So yeah. I get, so I, I go I in there. I have stuff at the museum. They have, you know, the kid robot stuff on display. It's part of their permanent collection, right? Yeah, I right? love that, yeah. Like but it's, it's so a great, cool. It's a great thing. But the best thing is I get to go in the museum for free and I get a discount at the restaurant. So I always go there. <laughs> so I go and I was having lunch and then this, this idea came up for Wu. Less, it was less than two months ago. And between, I, I designed, did the first design on the train home. Um, and then I started bringing in friends for ideas. So I brought in some old, so basically one of what I did was two weeks ago, I, so starting, they started actually design, work on it this past week. Actually, the engineers have started. But I wasn't happy with the design, so what did I do? I, took a, I, took, I went to my friend who's got a, got a really amazing branding design company, and I just paid for pizza for the entire company to look at what I did and give me ideas. So we had 20, 18, 20 people sitting in a room eating pizza, and I got 20 people's feedback for $80. And that was better than I could do with any set of full-time brilliant employees, right? 
And the same thing has like continually happened. Like, so my friend Ryan Miller, he's like the lead singer of Guster, totally brilliant guy. He lives in Vermont too. I've been just spending time with him. He's got great ideas. Turns out he's gonna do all the sound for the app now. So like I, as opposed to hiring all these full-time people, I've decided to just kind of keep it light. And then instead just ask friends. Some of them are really well-known and some of them are just smart people who are you know, not well-known people and who are just living their lives. And so it's, it's really like using that sort of, that wisdom, but it, there are ways to do it without very much money. Think about it. Do you plan on still staying involved with the, the bicycle? Yeah, I mean, my office is in the same office. Okay. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm involved daily with it, yeah. I'm curious to know why you launched that. It just seems out of left field. Right. Well, um, well, so I didn't own a car for about 18 years. So I, I didn't own a car, I lived on my bike. And, and what happened was I decided after, I decided, you know, after a while that I could afford a really nice bicycle. And so I started going to bike shops and realizing that I didn't want, my, my use of a bicycle is, it's a daily, it's something, it's my primary form of transportation, right? So I want it to be, I want it to be, to function perfectly, I want it to be really light, I want it to be incredibly gorgeous because I was always, so I get invited to like a fashion show or an art opening or whatever. I didn't show up in a cab and I didn't show up in a limo. I showed up in a beat up old bicycle. And I thought, well, what, couldn't I show up in something like totally beautiful and awesome? I mean, car, they have classic cars that are gorgeous. Why can't I have a gorgeous bicycle? So I started designing my own bikes and in my own completely obsessive way, I refused to buy any bicycles. But what I did is I started going to bike shops and test riding all their bikes. And I also show up with like, like, you know, like protractors and rulers and measuring all the angles, frame angles, and I would like weigh them. And then after a while, people, they would realize that I wasn't like, going to buy any bikes. Doing here? <laughs> so they would kick me out of the bike shop and have to go to another bike shop. <laughs> and I think I tried, I probably tried 400 bicycles. And I learned, and I read books on bicycle science. I talked to guys at MIT. So this is how I do it. I get really, really obsessed with things and I get really interested in them. And we, my, my wife and daughter and I'd be like walking next to the bike shop. I'm like, hold on, I gotta go in. And she'd be like, no, 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 not again. And I'd go in and half an hour later, I'd come out and go, God, I just learned something. I'd learn about paint. I'd learn about materials, colors, tube, tube wall thick, thicknesses, titanium, carbon, you name it. And after a while I started, I started just having frames built by custom frame builders until I was satisfied. And then people started asking to buy my bikes from me. So I'd sell them my prototype, usually off the street, and then I would build another one. That's how I knew I had a pretty good company. So there you go. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's, but it's like everything, you know, if we make something out of what we really feel like we're passionate about. Yeah. Passion is really the basis of everything you've done. Yeah, that and love, right? It's like, what, what, what do we love? So. so let's talk a little bit about you. Okay. as a person, um, without you know, getting into any personal details about your family, how has being an entrepreneur affected your family life? Uh, well, um, I probably would back up and say, how has being me affected my family life, like being who I am as a person? Yeah. Um, uh, well, I, I can be very, very, very focused, I can get, I'm very, very obsessed with things. So mm -hmm. it's hard for me to let go of an idea until it's solved often. Um, I uh, have traditionally had 
well, very non-traditional work hours. I just kind of work all the time and then don't work for periods of time too. I do my own thing at my own. And I couldn't do that anymore when I had a daughter. Yeah. Like when my daughter was, first it was hard to do with a wife. <laughs> like, uh, like I had an idea, I'm sorry, I can't go out tonight. <laughs> Gotta go work. But, uh, but with my daughter, I realized really quickly that that wasn't acceptable. That she needed me to be available when she needed me to be available. And I would say she's seven coming on eight and that has been the hardest eight years of my life. Basically, I think she came to earth to completely destroy <laughs> my life and teach me to grow up and become an adult by, by actually not being so selfish. So the, the great thing about children is that they're, that anything, they're, they're these little awesome people, but anything, any way that you fuck them up is your responsibility completely. And, and basically, like, I've had to give up a lot of, like, my habits, and I didn't realize how much they were compensation mechanisms for basically, like, super neurosis, psychosis, and trauma. So it's been hard, and it's been a lot of hard work, but it's been, you know, here I am, and I'm growing up for it, so that's good. Worth it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, otherwise I'd be that same guy. Yeah. You know. Huh. Um... You've said that you're an incredibly superficial person. What does that mean? Um, well, that means basically that if I could have been the, the guitar player in an amazing punk pop band or something, that's what I would have done. What, what band? Uh, really? Yeah. The Clash. That would have been amazing. That would have been the greatest. But they had, they had Joe Strummer, so they were all set up. <laughs> they, they were good. Yeah. But so, but I didn't have any, I wasn't talented in that way. And then if I could have drawn, like my friend Ben, who I did my t-shirt company, would, like my art was all Xerox and photography, right? But he could draw, like, you know, he could draw like a photograph, he could draw a cartoon. I couldn't do any of that stuff. Mm. If I could have played cello like Yo-Yo Ma, I would have been a cellist. Like I would have done anything I mean, I think there was always this longing in me to just be so good at something, mm. at some obvious thing, that I could just be like the world's greatest architect, and then I would know how I fit in the world, mm. right? Wouldn't that be such a, re such a relief to know our place in the world and just have it been spelled out? I mean, it was like this great interview with um, Duke Ellington. It, how about he said he got up when he was a kid, he was like, he got up, he woke up, he walked out, and through his whole life, Someone was opening the door going, just go that way, just go that way, just go that way. Because he was so talented and it was so obvious. Mm. And his role and his place in music was so clear. But that was not the case for me. So for me, it's like, I'm not particularly good at anything. I'm really not. Like, I'm not great at, I'm not the world's best bicycle designer. I'm not a great art toy creator. Everything great that I created was made in collaboration. I can barely draw compared to some of these guys, you know? I can't really do music. So I'm trying to think, I'm not a great business person. I'm not. If I was a great business person, I'd be way richer, and that's all I would be doing, right? But I'm not. And so because I have a su very superficial understanding of a lot of stuff, mm. and I'm a very fast learner. But I don't think I'm exceptional. I think that I'm just willing to focus. So I learn enough 
so that I can then go work with some of the best. And that's generally been my pattern. And the one thing I do have is I seem to be able to hold and express a vision, right? A very strong vision. But yeah, my, my thing is really like I'm partway through a book called The Power of Superficiality. And it's about the power of not really being great. Like what, is, what do you do when you're not great at something or at anything? But I think you would speak to somebody who has a huge talent and they feel trapped because they couldn't do anything else because they had the burden of this incredible talent. Yeah, or they were afraid to. Yeah. Yeah, there were some talented people that just decided not to do that because they didn't want to do that thing. But yeah, that's, that's possible too. But I think there's a vast, vast number of people, especially with the internet coming up, the internet's quite intimidating because we go on and we're like, oh my God, so, that person's so talented, I can never do that. You know, but, but I think my life is a testament that actually you can because what you don't see is that all, a lot of the talent, the ability to put things together, the willingness to follow through, the willingness to actually focus, they don't all come together, actually. And, and to me, the, the, ins, the, the power of being open to inspiration and the willingness to actually focus and follow through no matter what, as long as it's not a completely stupid idea. Like there's stupid ideas, which are the ones I do, and then there are really stupid ideas, which you should really never do. And some people just have really stupid ideas, so you shouldn't do that. But if you actually have a good idea, the willingness to just focus and follow through is so rare. And to really show up on time, you know, and show up on time over and over and pack the boxes and show up on time over and over and answer the emails or whatever it is. So there. Wow. Um, what's been your most satisfying moment in your business to date? Uh, Where you felt for a moment, yeah, I did it. Um, it's pretty continual. I don't think that, for me, it's like, so like when I left Kid Robot, I gave away all my toys to everyone, because part of leaving was we had to lay off a bunch of people. It's a long, long story. But um, so I just took my entire toy collection, which was all the toys I'd been given, mostly by all these artists that I really wish I had now. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I'm also glad, what, and then I just gave them to, here, I'm sorry I have to lay you off here. It's like $10,000 worth of toys or <laughs> whatever. Here's another. So I gave away all the toys, because uh, I'm not fundamentally a collector. Mm. I don't really. You know, like, like, there's a story about me, which is true, and it's happened several times that about two years into Kid Robot, I realized that I was gonna fail if I tried to do it all alone, and I was holding on to all these ideas, and I put everything I owned on the street, everything except for one table. I kept this Vitra table that I really loved, and so I had this apartment in New York City with nothing in it but this Vitra table and about 12 pairs of Nikes, because I like sneakers, and um, almost nothing else. I had a bed, and I didn't even have a chair. I sat on the floor for about five or six months till I found a chair I liked. So, like, I'm not a collector of things, mm -hmm. and so I'm more What's into the, the process. What's the opposite of a hoarder? What? What's the opposite of a hoarder? Like, neurotically getting rid of everything you own all the time. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway. Well, um, have you ever abandoned a project? A lot, constantly. So I'll I'll go down the road with a new idea. I'll go down the road with a new idea, and then, um, and then if it's just not a good idea, I'll let it go pretty early. And if it's not a good idea, I mean, I just left Allo, right? Mm -hmm. 
mm. giant investment, whatever. So I don't know if that would be called abandoning, but I would just said I wasn't the right person there to be there anymore. And some projects I've started and I've just been like, oh, that's a great idea. Uh, you know, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> it's not going to work. Can't get the money for it probably, or I just lost the vision. I, I'm not excited about it. Conditions changed, whatever. Mm. And would you say, I mean, I think you've talked about this a lot, but to sum it up, you know, the key to success for you has been just to keep on keeping on and the focus and the hard work? It's not clear to me that I'm successful. So it's not clear because I'm not, I'm not, I've never arrived anywhere yet. I keep thinking like, some, you know, there's that feeling like, eventually I'll arrive there, you know, and I'll have the private jet or whatever it is. Yeah, but it depends on your definition of, of success. Yeah, but I've never arrived. I always feel like there's just there's this uh, back to Buddhism stuff, but there's this there's this Buddhist expression about about living and always becoming, like we're always becoming, and if you're living and you're always becoming, you're always waiting for the thing that you're going to become. It's kind of like living in hell, because you're not really you don't realize this, this is all we are. This is the only place we are is right now. So like when. I'm just doing my job, my thing. I've never arrived because I'm always becoming, and if I get caught in that, I'm kind of unhappy. Instead, I'm just kind of always just working on what's next. And yeah, you know, it's really exciting and fun when, it's more fun when things work out, clearly. <laughs> it's way more fun, but they don't, but even when they work out, then there's the next disaster always. So, and then when there's the next disaster, it's always nice because then there's the next good thing that can happen because it's been a disaster. So it's always, because like that. Well, just think of all the, you know, brilliant things that you've birthed. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's true. It's been fun. Yeah, like, it's been great stuff. Kid Robot, I think, is a huge thing for a lot of people. It means a lot to people. Mm. So you, you've arrived there. I guess so. That's true. Although I left, so I'm still not there now. <laughs> um, I'm doing other stuff. <laughs> Any upcoming projects that you can share with us? Well, I've talked about Woo, Woo and anything? that's really my thing right now. So you're focused on that's that. That's it, yeah. And when I get time, I'll finish the book, so. All right. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.